Welcome, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is, again, your host, Dan Allen, and my guest this week is Father Pete McCormick, a Holy Cross priest and the director of campus ministry here on campus, and we're excited to talk to him about his life and the ministries that he's been a part of as a Holy Cross priest. So, Father Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Dan. Good to be here. So let's begin telling the audience just a little bit about yourself, who you are and where you come from. So my background is that I'm originally from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I grew up, I'm the oldest of six. I went to a place called Grand Valley State University for undergrad, got a degree in biology. And from there, I ultimately came down to Notre Dame. I had a friend of mine who was in the seminary, and he um, and his family were known, known to me, of course. And so as I was thinking about my own vocation, I ended up uh, just taking a look at Holy Cross in Notre Dame. And as a result of that, came down here. I, I really knew only just a little bit about Notre Dame. I frankly knew about Notre Dame when Michigan played Notre Dame <laughs> and the rivalry that existed right, there, right. and how much my uncle in particular, who's a big mentor of mine, uh, would always get fired up about that game. Yeah. So I thought, oh, that's kind of fun. Let's go down there and check that out. And right. then the rest, as they say, is history. I've been yeah. here since pretty much 2000, but my, yeah. my roots are in Grand Rapids. Most of my family's up there, yeah. And um, but really has been a blessing to be here. So growing up as the oldest of six, what was that like being that oldest sibling, a lot of privileges, but a lot of responsibility, all that kind of mix? <laughs> you say it well, that being the oldest of six, you, you really are in some ways as you get older, the third parent, especially <laughs> when you've got is the spread, like right. the, the gulf between me and then my youngest twin sisters is eight years. And so by the time that that age spread starts to play out, there's a lot of babysitting that's built in there. <laughs> Putting you to work. Uh-huh. And uh, there's a lot of diaper changing. So now as my adult sisters, if they try to get too fired up about anything, I can just always say, well, I have changed your diapers. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> Who were some of the mentors of faith that you had growing up that helped introduce and deepen your faith? I have to start with my own, my own parents, my mom and my dad, in different ways. My dad was always a silent type about faith. But he was always one who was committed to making sure that we got to Mass every Sunday. He was a, he's a Marine, and, um, and so there's a particular discipline about my father. <laughs> one of my favorite stories is, is that we were all getting ready and for church, and he was one of these guys who wanted to leave at a particular time and wanted to be early, didn't let, did not like walking into Mass the last minute. And so out of some form of a protest, he just went and sat in the car. He was like, at least I know I am sitting in this car and prepared to go to church. And then all of us came barreling out just a few more minutes, and we got to church relatively on time. My mom was uh, different in terms of her faith expression. She was always much more vocal, always engaging it, getting us to vocalize it a bit more, which, which I found to be very helpful as well. So the silent witness of my father, but the witness and the example that mm-hmm. he embodied, and then my mom and her willingness to kind of pray before meals and make sure that we were thinking about our actions as it relates to our faith mm-hmm. was really very important. Now, when you went to college, we all have that experience of this is the faith of my family, but yeah. I have to take ownership of it myself or not. So describe your college experience and how that related to your faith, if you would. Yeah, when I think about my college time, it's, it is kind of funny to me. So I, I lived at home the entire time. Okay. And uh, when I graduated, I thought to myself, and this just goes to show, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> I was like, I'm never going to live in a dorm. I never lived in a dorm. I never will live in a dorm. And I, my entire life as a priest, I have done nothing but live in a dorm. So Catching up for lost time. Yeah, and then some. You know, 
my life as a, as a college student felt, frankly, if I'm perfectly honest, very similar to that of being in high school. Okay. Know, I lived at home. I still yeah. went to mass with my parents. I kind of moved in and out of the family home throughout the entirety of that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's fascinating. When I came to Murrow Seminary, that was the first time. Talk about the double down. Right. It was my first time living outside <laughs> the house, and now I've just entered a seminary. Yeah. So I'm trying to on the fly figure out what does... What does my faith look like mm-hmm. while in the context of being formed for religious life? Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. many ways, that was a great environment to do so. Sure. Because I was building upon habits that I had, I had maintained through the example of my parents for so long, but really, truly figuring out that the church was a little bit bigger than what I encountered. Yeah. My experience of Catholicism was relatively small. Mm-hmm. It was my family's parish, St. James Catholic Grade School in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and the expression of my parents' faith and my immediate relatives' faith, but then to come down and to interact with people who saw the world differently from me, but yet sat right next to me in the pew Mm. and received and desired to receive the Eucharist Mm -hmm. was really a a widening experience that was very helpful for me at the time. Mm -hmm. So you didn't know anything about Holy Cross until you came to Notre Dame for the first time? No, and in fact, I called it the seminary at Notre Dame. Yeah. (laughs) I had... um, conversations with my parents there were these like very secretive conversations so i back to my sophomore year in high school okay that's the first time i thought i want to be a priest okay then uh, kind of going along and uh, i get to college and i change my major about every other semester <laughs> because i'm like nah i did not want to be a priest i want to be a doctor and that would last for a little bit no i want to be a teacher no I, I missed the boat i really need to be a doctor and so i ended up at the end of year four with not enough credits to graduate yeah. and still no real peace. Mm-hmm. And so I come into my fifth year, the victory tour. Right. <laughs> and and at that point, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I really got to solve this. Doctor, teacher, doctor, teacher. And I had this moment where I was big into cycling at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was out for a long ride. And, you know, St. Paul had his horse and I have my bike. <laughs> and I was, I was on the bike and I had this moment of clarity where I, I, I don't know if it was the voice of God or whatever, but the following words were said, Pete, I've given you plenty of time to discern this. Hmm. I've let you explore the variety of things, right. doctor and teacher and everything else, mm-hmm. but you've never once given any real time to this vocation of being a priest. Hmm. I need you at least to take a look at this. Mm-hmm. And, and from that point forward, gave me the courage to begin to explore. Like I said, I had a family friend down here. My mom said, well, why don't you just check out the seminary where Jeff is? Mm-hmm. And and that's what I did. I mm. came down here. I knew very little, but I knew that if you wanted to be a priest, you had to find a seminary. Right. And there was one at Notre Dame. Yeah. So <laughs> the rest unfolded. And and maybe to kind of complete this story, I sure. finally am accepted. I come down to to Notre Dame, and a couple weeks later, my family comes for a visit. My grandmother is here, and Notre Dame at the time was holding a Eucharistic Congress. And so, okay. for a Catholic grandmother, this is amazing. Right, First right. of all, <laughs> she has a, a you know one of her. Her own is right. now in the seminary, right. and and he's at Notre Dame, and now there's a Eucharistic Congress right. going on. So One step away from heaven. Right. There. There's priests <laughs> up and down the quads. They're all hearing confession. <laughs> Adoration's going on. And I say to my grandma, I said, Grandma, it really is dumb luck that I got here. Uh-huh. And my grandma said something to me that I'll never forget. She said it had nothing to do with luck. It mm. had everything to do with providence. Mm-hmm. And this was the gentle hand of God working in God's own time. Sure. And I've, I've always remembered that. Yeah. And I think to myself a lot, like, sometimes we try to be so prescriptive about our lives, but the fact is, is we're only in control to X extent. Right. And that there's a providential element weaving through this whole thing the entire time. So then you 
thought about being a priest, but then all of a sudden you're starting to discover, well, Holy Cross is a religious order, and this is religious life and priesthood. So what was that realization like, and what remained attractive to you about that as you continued your formation? I grew up my entire life Catholic, the proverbial cradle Catholic, and what I, what I think gave me caution and pause about the priesthood was, I'm from a big family. I'm the oldest of six. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom is one of 11. I've got cousins galore. And so big family is really important to me. Mm-hmm. Community in that context is very important to me. And I, I didn't want to be in a situation where I felt that I was kind of going it alone. Right. And again, this goes back to the providential element of this whole thing. I got down to Holy Cross, got down to the seminary, Moreau Seminary, and the first night that I was there, a group of the Sems, they all got together, and they're all playing cards. First of all, I love to play cards. Yeah. So we're sitting there, we're playing hearts, sitting around the table, and I, and I look around, I'm like, I could spend the rest of my life with these guys. This mm-hmm. is a community. These are people that I enjoy being around. Mm-hmm. They have interesting things to say, mm-hmm. and they're doing really amazing things. All of a sudden, that opened up for me in a way that I... I did not otherwise imagine. And it gave me such incredible calm. That insight into Holy Cross as a community then gave me the courage to pursue the priesthood in a way that previously I did not have. I don't, I don't even know that I knew when I applied to the seminary what I most needed. Mm-hmm. And Holy Cross provided that so that I could actually discern the priesthood. Hmm. And it, it was just that familiarity of family, not a family that you would have thought no. of, or not in a traditional way, but... Yep but a real brotherhood and, and family right. that you found. And there are some times where I'm sitting at a table and I'm thinking like, how are we connected? <laughs> you know, but that's the beauty of it. It's really important to have your horizons broadened and to be around people who, like I said before, have this deep faith and desire to serve the Lord, but at the same time, they come at problems very differently, mm-hmm. and I'm a better man for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned cycling yeah. um, as an interest, and I know you have a, a love of sports in general. So talk about your relationship with sports, and you had this moment during exercise in sports that it was a prayerful one. So has that been something that's been a, a common theme for you in your life? My whole life. You know, the way I've formed my friendships, the way that I spend my time, either actively or passively, it tends to be around sports. There's just something about it that has always been so attractive to me. I mean, I can remember, you know, when I was when I was young and I was in sixth grade and I was six foot two and I only grew an inch from there. But at the time, I was thinking, I'm going to the NBA. Very promising. Yeah, yeah I thought to myself, this is I cannot wait to sign autographs and the whole bit. But you know, the the discipline of the sport is probably what has been most appreciated. Not too long ago, in 2000, probably 16, somewhere in there, 17, I did a half Ironman in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Mm-hmm. And training for that, on one hand, I remember the first day I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And you, the way you do it typically is you get a big map out, and these are the things that you got to do every day. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, how am I ever going to find time for this? But I'll tell you what, the discipline of that just helped me. I so enjoyed the natural climb and progression, and you could see the improvement mm-hmm. as you were going along. Mm-hmm. And, and to do so in the context of other communities, so there was two of my other good buddies, and we were just kind of checking in with each other saying, all right, but I think that that's what I love about sports. It, it's one, is the discipline, but two, it brings people into community with one another. Mm-hmm. And it's just so attractive to me. And it has connections to your life as a religious, that there is a daily rhythm to your right. prayer and the communal life that you're a part of. And right. so there's, it seems like there'd be a natural fit mm-hmm. into the discipline and rhythm of religious life. 
That's exactly right. And it's so true. You should run a podcast. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Working on it. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned this irony that you didn't live in a dorm, and yet in your life as a priest, you've lived in a dorm a lot. Mm-hmm. So tell us about some of the ministries that you've been a part of, especially in your, your earlier years as a priest. Yeah, so I, I started as an assistant rector in Dillon Hall. A little bit of a backstory on that is it, when I was in the seminary, I was assigned for a year. I took a break in, with the Masters of Divinity, and I went out and worked in Phoenix, Arizona, mm-hmm. and I fell in love with those people and that place. I studied Spanish for two different summers, and most of that Spanish is, by and large, left. <laughs> Just um, dormant, dormant. It's right, very <laughs> dormant, very, very dormant. But at the time, I thought, okay, I'm going to return right back to Phoenix, work at St. John Vianney. And then I, I go and I sit down with the religious superior of Murrow Seminary at the time, and here it is. Here's the moment of truth. Where am I going to get assigned my first time? And he says, Pete, we've decided to assign you as an assistant rector in Dillon Hall. I'm like, as I'm like, Dillon Phoenix? Is there such a thing? I've never heard of it. Right. <laughs> or do you mean the Dillon Hall, the one sitting right on South Quad, yeah. working under the great Father Paul Doyle? Right. And that's, that's where it all began. I knew nothing about the halls uh, other than the fact that we had to have them, mm-hmm. um, because that's what universities typically have. Mm-hmm. But that introduced me to this rich residential life tradition. I moved in. I was in Dillon for a year. And then I moved over to Keogh, where I served as a rector for the next six. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I'm now getting older when I have students at Notre Dame who are now calling me and telling <laughs> me to look out for students that they had Uh-oh. as high school teachers, Okay, which is kind of blowing my mind <laughs> right, right. that that's, that's the length of time that I've now been, that former undergrads are out now working their craft, and they're sending to Notre Dame yeah. the students, and they, they're reaching out to me to say, hey, look out for this kid. Or right. I just was in a text exchange last night about one student in particular that this former student was worried about, like, uh-huh. hey, what, what can we do? And I said, like, well, connect them with these people. But it really is the passage of time and, and the people that you meet all stems from that time in the dorms, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. being there with your door open, someone popping in and asking a question or walking by when they're doing something knuckleheaded and just kind of laughing. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. It keeps you young, and it's, it's, it's privileged ministry. Mm-hmm. And it's reminiscent of you talked about being part of a large family and lots of cousins and chaos the community of moreau and you know the brotherhood you found there and then that's a a bit of what we're trying to accomplish in these residential communities to try and help people to belong and to feel a part of this and to look out for one another all those things you'd hope that a family and community would do that's exactly right and i think about the work that's being done right now by student affairs specifically under the direction of Erin Hoffman Harding, you know, last year she did this large and extensive inclusivity survey mm-hmm. and study. And what we found is, is that by and large, we do a really good job. Mm-hmm. About 85% feel, man, this is great. Mm-hmm. There's another 15% that, for whatever reason, feel that they're a little bit on the outside. And mm-hmm. what's, what's great about knowing that and having data to back it up is you can begin to be more intentional and thoughtful about, we've got a good thing going, how do we expand that? Mm-hmm. How do mm-hmm. we make sure that every parent, every guardian who drops off their son or daughter feels good about the fact that this loved one is going to be have the opportunity to flourish here. Right. And and I think that it's it's a great challenge that's presented to us and mm-hmm. one that we continually have to evolve and that's that's the amazing thing, right? The residential system is an organism that's growing because we're changing out the people every year and they right. come in with different needs, they yeah. come in with different perspectives and so to uh, continually allow this organism to evolve so that it meets today's students where they're at, mm-hmm. I think is a really attractive mm-hmm. invitation. Yeah. 
Now, what about this move to campus ministry? How did that come about? So I was probably year five, maybe six of Keo, and started to think about kind of what those next steps would be. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, I, I love students, and I love to kind of be around them and with them. And I thought, if it's not going to be as a rector, what could it be? Mm-hmm. And, and the campus ministry opportunity was one that was rather apparent to me. Father Warner had just cycled off uh-huh. in, into a new role within the congregation, mm-hmm. and there was an interim placed in Father Joe Carey. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I mean, not in this moment, but that could be something if I had the proper training, that could be something I'd be really interested in doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it began conversations around, all right, well, what would that take? And the first one was I needed greater administrative experience. Mm-hmm. You can't move from a residence hall to running an operation like campus ministry overnight. So I'm grateful to the congregation. They were open to the idea of going back, me taking a break from serving as rector to go earn an executive MBA from mm-hmm. Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And, and the nature of the executive MBA was, and this is where I'm so grateful to the people around me because they were so strategic, in addition to that part of it, in my first year of the two-year program, I did a job that I thought, why am I doing this job? And it was to recruit and hire the batch of rectors for that particular year. But Uh that meant Uh that I had to go about tweaking our recruiting mechanisms and working with HR and all the back-end stuff Mm -hmm. that administratively, you just have to know. Yep. So I did that for an entire year. And then the next year, I got placed as an associate director within campus ministry. And I was able to to learn it for the better part of six months. And then Father Jim King, who at the time had taken over, he was also serving as superior of Corby Hall. So he was doing two jobs right. and was more than willing to kind of hand over the keys. <laughs> he's, he's kind of a, a pretty relaxed guy about this. So the, the moment of my announcement that I'm now serving as director is we're all sitting, he calls a staff meeting in early January after we return from Christmas break. And he's like, well, I'm sure some of you are wondering why we're here today. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the front row, and he takes the keys out of, his, out of his pocket, and he says, I'm just here to announce that Father Pete McCormick will now be the director of campus ministry. And he slides the keys across the table. Huh. And then he goes, any questions? Okay. See you all later. <laughs> and then walks out the door. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and just walks out the door. I knew this was coming, so we tried to, like, get in a cake. He wouldn't, yeah, he was like, yeah, okay, but like, who wants cake at 9.30 in the morning? (laughs) And so everyone's kind of, they're not shocked. I think people had figured it out that it was, it was coming. They just didn't see it coming in that precise moment. (laughs) And so people are like awkwardly trying to eat cake and I'm trying to say, I'm really excited about this, (laughs) but it was, it's one of those moments that I, I remember that moment so clearly. But if I think back to campus ministry, to every, every moment that led to that point, the number of people who provided me guidance and Mm -hmm. insight about how to be set up for as much success as I possibly could be. Mm -hmm. They were so thoughtful and intentional, and for that I'll be forever grateful. Well, it's interesting that you did an EMBA because probably not any other priest classmates in that program. There are people doing all different kinds of things you could kind of learn from. There's a collaboration, I'm sure, that that happened there. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, a lot of times they would ask me, my classmates out of the gate, like, okay, so why are you not... (laughs) Why are you here? That was really what they were politely trying to say. You, you and, think about poverty, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Well, I got a little side hustle over here. But what they would say is, uh, like, why are you here? And then I would always say, well, let's just strip it out. I've got a staff of 40 and a multi-million dollar budget. 
what do you recommend? Mm-hmm. And then they'd be like, oh, okay, I get it. Yep. If you're thinking about salaries and you're thinking about all the different programming dollars and all the different touch points of campus ministry, it's a mid middle size operation. Yeah. And you can wreak some havoc on that if you don't know what you're doing. Sure. To the degree that I possibly control it, I've tried not to wreak havoc. In the first semester, <laughs> maybe even a year, people would ask me how it's going. I'd say two things are occurring. The building is not burned and people are getting paid. So by and large, I feel like we're doing <laughs> That's okay. Good. That's good, yeah. So it is a pretty large campus ministry staff in comparison to other even Catholic universities or Newman centers. So what are some of the advantages and challenges of a staff that large and what you're trying to do here at Notre Dame? Yeah, I I think that one of the advantages is we have the capacity to do pretty much anything we want. We're resourced in a way that allows us to be creative. doesn't mean that we can do everything, but we're able to be very creative in our approach. The challenge is, in fact, how do we continue to push ourselves outside of our own comfort zones? You know, when you get in a situation like this where there's plenty of people or, you know, there's enough resources to to feel like you're able to move the needle, you can get comfortable. You can get comfortable in your own office. You can get comfortable in the things that you know that you're particularly good at doing. So we have to constantly challenge ourselves to refresh, to reassess, and to continue to think about how is it that we need to evolve because our students are evolving. A mentor of mine here at Notre Dame always talks about this. He says, all right, if you've got a program that's four years old, okay, that means that this current freshman class, that program started when they were in eighth grade. Mm -hmm. Tell me the other things in their lives that have changed since eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing, but the reality is it's it's just easier to pull that file out of the drawer and be like, okay, here we go. Here's program X. It takes more time in the summer, frankly, to like have to retool the whole thing. And it also takes risk. Mm -hmm. I have to be willing to walk away from something because I believe that the community is calling forward from me something that is completely different. And that means that it has to plan all the type of vulnerabilities that we have as professionals. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, well, if my work is in fact who I am, which is not true, but sometimes that's a temptation, sure. then I have to be willing to kind of suspend that and try, try something new and look at the problem differently. Mm-hmm. What have been some of the changes that you've seen both in the students, we can think back to your time as rector through campus ministry, but also in some of the ministries that campus ministry has undertaken, what would have been some of the evolutions that have happened? Yeah, first and foremost, if you look at the students, the the temptation, and I always say this, is to think about, well, students are, are so X, Y, or Z. Well, I hate to break it to you. Anyone who's ever been a young person, there's been someone who's older who would say the students are so X, Y, and Z. Right. But if we can begin to look at them as a group, some of the some of the areas that I think are absolute positives, they have great hearts. They have a great desire to make a, a true and meaningful impact in this world. The challenge that they will face is, is that they're not always the best at genuinely kind of showing themselves for who they are. Mm-hmm. They live in a world in which perfection is kind of the ideal. Mm-hmm. They're, they're washed with images within social media that kind of show everyone living their best life. Mm-hmm. But the reality is we know from the research High rates of anxiety, depression, loneliness just abound. So how do we grapple with those two realities? And I think one of the big projects that we have on our hands moving forward is, is, is truly moving towards authenticity. Can we, can we get people to, to move the needle, to let their guard down in such a way that allows, allows them to encounter one another for who they are? Because I think when, when you encounter another human heart, <laughs> there's, there's a sympathy and empathy that all of us are moved to almost immediately. Mm-hmm. But when we encounter something that is seemingly so perfect, we just get intimidated 
buy it mm -hmm. and as a result kind of shrink within ourselves and so mm -hmm. if we can truly encourage students to genuinely be who they are and that's that's the work of a lifetime but mm -hmm. if nothing else we'll take a few cracks at it mm -hmm. and what would you say to parents who are they've got up-and-coming high schoolers so to speak you know you see these these students just after they leave high school and are out of the nest for the first time what can parents do to help their children even in this day and age continue to grow in faith and can grow in emotional maturity and any advice that you might offer to parents when I think about parents, and, and again, I, having not been one, I'm right. just the recipient of the people that they drop off right, right around the ages of 18. I would say, if faith is something that matters to you, talk to your kids about it. Witness it in how you live your life and realize the influence that you're having on them. Mm -hmm. I think about it in my own life. Right. I think about it how our students, even today, they care about what their parents do and mm -hmm. what they say. Mm -hmm. I think that to maintain an openness, resist the temptation to immediately jump on their questions, actually allow for them to explore this. Let's talk about the difficult topics. Let's talk about their perspective. I think one of the challenges that we're always going to face is, well, the church says X. Mm -hmm. Well, our students today have watched as institutions, including our own as a Catholic church, have not always proven that what they say and what they do are the same thing. Yeah. And so leading what the church says X may not be the best approach. Mm -hmm. Allow them to grapple with the questions, to make them their own, to be mm -hmm. a conversation partner in that. But if we can continue to be engaged in the conversation while at the same time living into the faith, I think it's a powerful witness. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have been talking about specifically the abuse crisis with all the guests on this season of the podcast and in conjunction with what Notre Dame is trying to do this year and forming a positive response. But, you know, as a priest, what has it been like for you to, to live through hearing some of the stories and some of the difficult things? And, and where do we go from here? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. You know, I, when the news broke out of Pennsylvania just over a year ago, it was devastating to me. A little bit of my back story, you know, I, I was in my second year in the seminary when everything out of Boston, Boston broke. Right. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the way I rationalized this was, this is a series of bad actors mm -hmm. that the church is going to kind of wash out, and what it needs are our priests who are willing to kind of step in and, mm -hmm. and do the right thing, and we can get back to work as usual. Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden, almost a full 20 years later, Mm -hmm. to once again face the reality of the mismanagement then and the cover-up until now, mm -hmm. and to think about, that's one state. How many other attorneys generals are going to like mm -hmm. <laughs> reveal any number of really unpleasant matters yeah. was just devastating. And so my, my response at the time was, one, I had to get over myself. Two, we, we kicked off a few things. We did a student listening session. I participated more broadly in a kind of university-wide listening session, mm -hmm. which ultimately brought about and came to some of the work that the university is doing this year with the forum. Mm -hmm. But I think that what needs to continue to happen here, in my mind, and certainly this is a really complex reality, you're yeah. talking about seminary formation, you're talking about how do priests manage the middle part of their lives in terms mm -hmm. of getting their own intimacy needs met, mm -hmm. how do we talk about sex and sexuality, how do we talk about appropriate boundaries and all these types of things. And so I, to me, I continue to think to myself, take care of what you can, can take care of mm -hmm. and always be willing to have the conversation. 
I should never grow tired of this conversation because the fact that someone's willing to ask it and engage in it means that on some level they care. Mm -hmm. And even though it pains me, and even though there are times in which I think to myself, as I walk through an airport or as I walk through a hotel lobby, what do people think about me? Mm -hmm. The fact is, is that there have been people who have, who have encountered such hardship that I want to share in some of that pain. Mm -hmm. And not to overly make this theological, but Jesus encountered great suffering as well. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to seek to follow after him, I should expect to have to encounter some degree of suffering as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you, as Holy Cross, take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. It's one thing to to make those vows on, on the day, of final vows. As you said, it's another thing to mm -hmm. live into them. So how have you made sense of living into those vows in the time since you made, you made them in the first time? One day at a time. I remember when I took final vows, and I, I had this incredible anxiety leading up to the moment because the vow formula is the same, mm -hmm. except for one word. Up until that point, you say, for one year. Yeah. <laughs> and then the vow formula shifts, and it, it actually condenses, and you just say, forever. Right. <laughs> and I remember thinking about forever. Yeah. I've never made a commitment to anything forever, uh -huh. Uh -huh. ever. Yeah. And to really reflect upon what that could look like. And I think to myself, the reasons I'm a priest today versus the reason I decided to be a priest then have evolved. Mm -hmm. The suffering, frankly, that I've encountered, not just around the clergy abuse crisis, sure. but the times of loneliness, the times of of challenge, the times where I'm like, I gave my life to the church, and yet I'm encountering these hardships? What the heck? Mm -hmm. Have given me a greater, I think, compassion and understanding for the reality of any vocation. Mm -hmm. We all, on our best day, put our best foot forward and commit to something that we don't entirely know <laughs> what it's inviting us to. How is this going to turn out? Right? Yeah. But yet this is where the humility that each of us are invited to possess gives us the space for God to flow through that. And that quite literally is my experience. Mm -hmm. I don't sit before you now claiming that everything's been honky-dory and easy, sure. but it's by the grace of God that I've continued to this point, and that is increasingly what I need to rely upon in order to continue this vocation. Mm -hmm. What have been some of the greatest joys about being a priest and the privileges that, that you get to experience? Yeah, I, and I think about the, the great joys, it's the people. It's the people, it's the tender moments of encounter, whether it be a wedding, whether it be a baptism, whether it be just a moment in confession where these, these moments, or then furthermore, kind of seeing the people that you've known as undergrads then out there in the world doing their thing is just so inspiring. And I think to myself, would my life have been full if I were to have remained in Grand Rapids? I think the answer is yes. But there's a different quality to this experience of being here at Notre Dame that I could have never imagined. Mm -hmm. uh, the opportunities that have been presented to me, there's no way I could have imagined that. And so I, I have to continue to remind myself that whatever the next chapter of my vocation is, I don't fully know what that is. Mm -hmm. And two, God has something greater in store for me than what I can otherwise imagine. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, every time I've tried to predict where I was going to go, I failed. I want to be a biology teacher or a doctor. <laughs> I... I'm going to be in St. John Vianney Parish in Phoenix, Arizona. 
Dylan Hall. I'm done. I'm done trying mm-hmm. to make that bold prediction of what, what is the next thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to be as faithful as I can to the day mm-hmm. and respond to that because that's the only moment I've actually got. Mm-hmm. And, and trust that the, the wider movements of what's going to occur, that's in God's hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the beauty of hindsight being 2020, what would you say to your younger self when you came to that moment of discernment or decision or even doubt about do I take this leap or not? What would, what would be some things that you'd say to yourself and knowing what you know now? I think what I would say to myself is you don't need to have all the answers. I resonate so with, with what our undergrads are going through right now. It's interesting, our seniors in a particular way, <laughs> you know, because we are quickly emerging into the time in which some of them already have next year locked up. Mm-hmm. And so they can begin to talk about how things are going so well for them. And, you know, this is just uh, one more year of taking it easy. And then meanwhile, they got classmates who have no idea. Mm-hmm. And, and that tension is palpable. And not like they're angry at the other, but it's more a matter of, well, what did I do wrong that I don't have that kind of clarity into my future? And the, the older I get and the more I look back, I, I resonate with that. But I also think to myself, you don't need to have all these answers. You need to be faithful to the day. You need to be faithful to the week and do the best that you possibly can and trust that what is to come will come. So that would be the first thing. And then the second thing is truly to say, God has something greater in store for you, for you than what you can possibly imagine at present. Mm-hmm. But it will not come without difficulty. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not going to come with ease there will be real challenge and heartache along the way. Yeah. And, and be okay with the fact that that's part of the deal. You know, Jesus never says, if you follow me, everything will be great. Mm-hmm. There's a reason he uses the image of the cross. <laughs> Pick up your cross and carry it. <laughs> we should think to ourselves as active followers of Christ, this part of our deal. And I think that as, as a community of faith, we can demonstrate what it looks like to carry the cross with hope. Mm-hmm. Because we know that all is ultimately swallowed up in victory in time, mm-hmm. in time, mm-hmm. whatever that circumstance, it's swallowed up in victory. Yeah, it's so rich, and I think plays right into the congregation of Holy Cross and the constitutions, and and it, it plays out with what we see here on campus, but sometimes it's not that explicit. It's a little more hidden. It's just a kind conversation, you know, an encouraging word or something, but that's what we're doing is, is bringing hope to people who sometimes find themselves without it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we talked about sports, we talked about faith, but we haven't talked about your somewhat famous role <laughs> you see on TV every once in a while as the men's basketball chaplain. So tell us about uh, how that came about and what that's been like. Serving as the, as the chaplain of the men's basketball team, again, falls under the category had no idea, could not have anticipated that. But this is, this is how it all came to be my whole life playing sports. In college, I officiated. In high school, I played. And then I get to Notre Dame. And I think, well, I guess that's kind of over. I'm, I'm playing in rec leagues for the rest of my life. Yeah. And then I was attending a game, and I looked at the end of the bench, and I saw a priest And I thought, well, maybe. Hmm. I never thought about that. Still, at the time, I'm thinking, I'm going to get assigned to a parish. This is not not really going to happen. Then I get assigned to Dylan Hall. And I get a phone call one day from the vice president for student affairs, a priest by the name of Father Mark Poorman, who's Mm -hmm. now the president at the University of Portland. Mm -hmm. And he says, listen, I know you're a big hoops guy. Would you be willing to serve as the co-chaplain of the Notre Dame game versus Michigan? I'll be serving as the chaplain. Mm -hmm. Now, let's be really clear. 
They had no need. He had no need for a co-chaplain. None. Zero. Basketball team's not that big. Yeah, not that big. He did not need a deacon at the time to sit to his left watching the game. But I assure you, I was like, yeah, I'll do that. So I, um, I got down, and that's what got me into the rotation. So I started serving. At the time, we had probably about 20 guys who would pick up a couple games, and that's how you divide the season because mm-hmm. there's like 40 or so games. Right. So that's how it all played out. But then what I started to notice was, as I got along with the team a little bit more, they never really fully knew who all these priests were because the number of guys coming in and out. Mm-hmm. It was just another Roman collar and another Roman collar and another sure. Roman collar. So I pitched this idea to, at the time, the director of campus ministry, Father Joe Carey. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, said, listen, I don't know if this is worthwhile or not, but would you ever be willing to consider shrinking the pool down to like one or two guys tops? That way the guys are actually going to get to know mm-hmm. these priests, mm-hmm. and there's a relationship that can evolve here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a good thing going, so Father Joe said, I appreciate the suggestion. Great. A year goes by, and what was beginning to happen was this. Everyone and their brother was going to sign up for the marquee games right. and some of the really great opportunities. Right. But you know what? For every marquee game, there's a game that's not so interesting <laughs> right around December 27th right. that is really hard to find someone for. Mm-hmm. And so Father Joe, after having encountered this a couple years in a row, gives me a phone call. I'm still the rector of Keogh. I'm sitting my lazy boy watching ESPN. I can remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> it's like 9.30, 10 o'clock, sun's coming in, uh, living that rector life. I've not walked outside of my room yet at all <laughs> and uh, probably only been up for 20 minutes. And he's like, hey, Pete, this is Joe. I've been thinking a bit about what you had said all those months ago. Yeah. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to be the guy. Hmm. And I said to him, Yes, I will do that. What do I need to sign? He said, nope, all I need you to know is that you're going to be at the next game. And from that point forward, that was seven years ago, hmm. I have by and large served. I've, I've had some assistance, especially when I was doing the NBA, sure. you know, to get a little bit of help there. But that's, that's how it all came to pass. Mm-hmm. What I love about it is, is that it gives me the chance to interact with guys who otherwise wouldn't come into campus ministry. One of my favorite stories, one of, one of the guys just today actually knocks on my door and he comes in. I'm in a meeting. I'm like, yeah, yeah what's up? He says, hey. I need a Bible. I'll bring it back. And so, like, I just, I just grabbed a Bible off my shelf, and he boom, took I have no idea what he's going to use it for. Right, right. But I'm sure it'll come back at some point. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's allowed you to deepen your relationships with yes. these guys and for them to really probably have a better sense of— That's right. I get to know, an actual, you know, Father Pete as a priest as, That's right. as opposed to any number of— Good, good men, but just different people all the time. That's right. And what I've selfishly, what I've enjoyed is, is in an administrative post like mine, you know, to spend time with with students mm-hmm. and have a direct line, straight up ministry, mm-hmm. um, where you're hearing about their lives and so on and so forth. And some guys use me, and some guys don't, and yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Number one rule of ministry: don't make yourself be needed. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but always be available and let them know that you're you're willing to have the conversation should they need it. Mm-hmm. What are some of the unique challenges of a student athlete, especially at a major D1 program like Notre yeah. Dame? What they encounter is amazing amounts of fame relative to kind of their world. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. can go from literally an unknown to all of a sudden having X thousand Twitter followers or Instagram followers or whatever the case might be. But at the same time, they're still 18. They're still 19. Yeah. They still have all the challenges that any other 18 or 19-year-old will face. So helping them to balance the notoriety 
with the responsibilities that come with the notoriety, while at the same time wanting just to be one of the guys and, and have friends and do fun things and so on and so forth. So you have to balance all those aspects. And, and I tell you, at Notre Dame, we're very fortunate. Coach Bray and his staff, they have a good sense of here's the line. Mm-hmm. Coach Bray oftentimes talks about, you know, when he, he first got into this, he was a high school teacher at DeMatha High School mm-hmm. in the D.C. area. Mm-hmm. And him serving as a high school teacher, I think, was incredibly formative for the work that he was then to do later on at high-level D1 stuff. But I, never, I don't think being a teacher has ever really left him. And so he very much sees the organic, ongoing process that it takes from being a freshman to a senior. And I think you see that in the evolution of our guys, how it is that players like Zach August, Jerry and Grant, Bonzi Colson continue to get better and better. And another great example would be Pat Connaughton, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like all these guys who ha- are talented but have, have matured and grown think about Johnny Mooney this past season about his junior year this explosion of talent mm-hmm. that all the while was coming along from a from a kid from Orlando Florida to all of a sudden now a full-grown man who's leading the league in rebounds yeah. pretty impressive right and then I also think about that reality of the excitement of sports but then the inevitable letdown eventually Oof. yeah that Eventually, our, our bodies don't function as well as they once did. Yep. Or I thought I was going to make the league, but now I'm not. Or I thought I was going to play, and I don't seem like I'm playing very much. I'm a, a practice squad player. So how have you helped people sometimes when they face some of those disappointments in sports and connect them to sometimes the disappointments that we face in life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it has to start with what do you root your identity in? In the recent news, you know, you see – Andrew Luck from the Indianapolis Colts retire at the age of 29. And everyone's thinking to themselves, well, why would he do that? He, he stood to make somewhere around $500 million, some reports say. Mm-hmm. What I love about his decision is the maturity that he possessed because he knew that there was a greater life that he was being invited to lead, and he was able to walk away from a, a career that many people covet. The, the same is true with these young men, that their whole lives they've been basketball players. Right. And it's been reinforced time after time after time. What I think is really a unique point of view that Notre Dame has to offer, that the church more broadly has to offer, is that your fundamental identity is in Christ, is in God's love for you, in the fact that God loved you, created you, and has given you inherent dignity. We got to make that point more often so that they realize that this is a chapter, a part, an aspect of my life, but it is not the totality of who I am as a human being. And so one of my things, the way I subtly make that point with our guys, I'm constantly thinking, what conversations can I have with them that are outside the realm of basketball? Mm-hmm. Like, they know that I know that they are basketball players. <laughs> that is not lost on any of us. Right. But I am aware that they are not one-dimensional, that they have other interests, they have other passions. And, and what I try to do to the degree possible is ask them about them. Mm-hmm. What are you interested in? If it's Marvel Comics, like Matty Farrell was a big Marvel Comics guy. Mm-hmm. When, when Black Panther came out, he was so excited about that. And so, like, why do you care about this? What is the back story of Black Panther? And, like, and, and let me hear about that. Let mm-hmm. me hear about your passions and mm-hmm. what you're excited about. So to me, that's what I'm always hunting for with these guys. Mm-hmm. What are they interested in beyond the sport of basketball mm-hmm. that, that contributes to the person that they are? Well, and it's a lesson to all of us to think about what is our identity because we can all fall into this trap of, I need this specific job title or this salary range, or this house, car, family size, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever we measure our success by, 
and inevitably things don't go exactly the way that we thought they would. And even if they do, it's amazing. I see, you know, Super Bowl winning quarterbacks or people who've won the NBA finals and they're still hungering for something more. And yep. I think that speaks to, well, what is our core identity? And we, it'll serve us better to give attention to that than to worry about some of these things that aren't always in our control. Right. There's a, there's a story that I read a while back about Aaron Rodgers after the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl. And he tells the story. He's sitting on the bus after they won the whole thing. And he, he, this question flashes across his mind. Is this what it's all about? Mm-hmm. You know, like here he is just moments after what seemingly is the high watermark of his, his career and right. what his organization strives after. But yet there's still that inner longing. Mm-hmm. How do we get to that? Mm-hmm. I think people make some really poor decisions at times hunting for and trying to answer what that inner longing is. Mm-hmm. And we just, it only complicates things more fully. And so not to judge that, but just to state that there's a God-saved hole. <laughs> right. How do we go about kind of filling that in thoughtful and meaningful ways? Mm-hmm. And obviously the theme of this podcast is holiness and the pursuit of it. Yep. What have been some of the ways that you have found success in pursuing it in your own life? or ways that you've admired others as they've pursued their own call to holiness? Yeah, this is an area that is ongoing in my life, and I'm actually nervous about this aspect of the podcast. <laughs> because anyone who works with me or lives around me be like, well, about that... Um, <laughs> work in progress. That's a work right? in progress, so thank God there's no one uh, who has the opportunity to call in on this podcast. <laughs> Because they might refute anything that I'm about ready to say. But I think it genuinely is about any pursuit of holiness is genuinely about humility. And I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I was having a long day. student that I've known for a long time comes up to me, and, he's, and he, got, he got under my skin. He poked. And I, and I said to him, I was like, listen, you can't constantly ask me this question. It just, it's just, I just don't have, I don't have the energy for it. And in that moment, I felt like a total schmuck mm-hmm. because, you know, it's, it's the culmination of a lot of weeks of welcoming back and everyone and feeling like, stop asking me how busy I am. Mm-hmm. Because the answer is I'm busy, but I don't want to talk about that because this is privileged and important work. Mm-hmm. And so I, I finished that conversation with him and I went to my office and I went, did the rest of my meetings. And then about five o'clock, I'm getting ready to eat dinner, and I just kept thinking to myself, man, Pete, you knucklehead. And so I, I texted Brian. I said, hey, do you got a minute? Can you come back up? Because he lives in Stanford Hall where I live. And I just apologized to him. And I apologized to him because I, there are other ways that I could communicate my frustration with our interaction. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, Dan, one of the one of those moments is like, I think an, a true aspect of holiness, any holiness that I'm even like inching towards, has to be met with an awareness of, of our, own, our own lack, our own need for ways that we need to be in relationship with one another and apologize for the time in which we've created offenses. Mm-hmm. That, that's one of the things that I'm working on, trying to model the fact that I am a pilgrim on the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am a guy who I do the best that I can each day, I try to figure it out in the times in which I don't, the times in which I misstep, like the time I did with Brian, then I got to be willing to apologize and not get so proud as to think like, who is that guy thinking that he could ask me these things? Mm-hmm. And, and that awareness, I think, has allowed me at minimum to realize, you know, 
what my inner longing for conversion and, and what that need looks like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I imagine one of the graces of being a member of Holy Cross is that you do have other people who are showing you that way, right. who are showing you that example. You know, it was one thing to come in and it's kind of your cohort of guys, your class of seminarians, but all of a sudden you take vows and you enter into this community and sometimes you meet priests who are on death's door or, yep. you know, at the culmination of their career or all along. So who have been some of the people or the lessons who have shown yeah. you what it means to be a holy priest, mm-hmm. and especially in the context of the Congregation of Holy Cross. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many people. I mean, you and I both know our fair share of Holy Cross priests, and there's so many great people. That there's, there's two stories that immediately come to mind. One is a priest by the name of Father Al Delonzo, and Father Al uh, has, has gone to the Lord at this point. But he had an amazing story. So he was he was a walk-on for the Notre Dame football team back <laughs> in the day, mm-hmm. and he discerns his vocation to the priesthood. In the middle of, of kind of his playing career, he walks in and tells the coach, like, you know what, listen, um, it's been great to be a part of the team, but I'm going to enter the seminary. And he walked <laughs> away from it all. Huh. So many years later in life, and at this point, his health is definitely showing that he played football for an extended period of time. His mm-hmm. knees are a little bit wonky, kind of wobbles back and forth. He's got a cane. <laughs> And he gives this great homily. He says, here's the deal. You can't give what you don't have. And he was talking specifically about if you're not praying, if your life is not spent meditating on the life of Jesus, and as a priest, you're not doing those things, mm-hmm. what are you going to give? Because mm-hmm. that's what we're called to give. Mm-hmm. And I have that particular moment so clearly just embedded in my memory. And there are times in which I do that really well, and there's times in which I don't, frankly. Mm-hmm. Another one, there was a, a moment... This is more recent. Father Terry Ehrman, who is another great Holy Cross priest on this campus, biologist, theologian, uh, and just a passionate priest. Uh, There was a a woman in the Notre Dame Stadium during a football game who had a heart attack, Hmm. and they needed someone immediately to do an anointing. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't at the game at the time, and so I got the phone call from Notre Dame Emergency, and I texted Father Terry. And uh, he immediately went, he had his oil stock right there with him, and he did the anointing. Mm -hmm. And when I texted him to thank him for what he had done, he just simply responded back with, priest, Hmm. this is what I do. This is who I am. This is my service to the people of God. Don't thank me for what what it is that God has invited me to do. And and I just I just love that. Like to have a clarity. I think I think Father Al's point is this is this is the anchor point. Yeah. And then what's the expression of it? It's what Father Terry did. Mm-hmm. And so these are two examples of people that have been great models for me and points of inspiration. Yeah. Well Father Pete, knowing you and knowing the work that you do, I know that you yourself inspire a lot of students and a lot of people on staff and everyone you come in contact with. So Thank you for being with us on the podcast this week, and thanks for the witness of all that you do. Thanks, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be with you all. Well, that concludes our episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. We'll continue to release episodes, especially through our daily gospel reflection, and we invite you to sign up for that at faith.indy.edu slash sign up. Until next time, we'll keep you in our prayers. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.